All right, thank you so much for singing this morning. It's been a real encouragement to my heart. I loved that last chorus. My life is hid with Christ in God. I hope that's true of you today. Uh, perhaps you've been coming to church for some time, and yet you still have not believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Or perhaps you're a new guest today, and, and you don't know that reality. You can't say that you are in Jesus Christ, that he is your Savior, that He died for your sin, that you believe in Him, that you've repented of those sins so that you could be accepted by God. Uh, we trust that throughout the course of the sermon today, and then as we partake in the Lord's table, it, be, it will become clearer and clearer to you of your need to be hid with Christ in God. Uh, so at this time, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. In full transparency, uh, we had scheduled for several weeks uh, for there to be a guest speaker this week, and then uh, something happened. He had a death in his family um, on Monday, and so he he told us that he wouldn't be here. Um, I was hoping to get two weeks to get ready for Romans 7. Uh, This is uh, one of those passages, you know, if if it's one of the issues that took the church fathers and uh, scholars, thousands of years to try to figure out, and they're still trying. I wanted two weeks, at least, uh, to prepare for this, uh, but I'm so thankful for the opportunity. It would have been really hard for me not to preach uh, today anyway, so I'm, I'm really thankful uh, to be able to do that with you today. So we come to Romans chapter 7, uh, in the middle of the chapter, we come to the most famous and in one of the most important passages in all of Romans. You've perhaps heard some of the verses that we're going to talk about already today. Paul says within this text things like, I I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Or he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me uh, from this body of death? I said at the beginning, this passage is not just familiar, it's also important. As a pastor, one of my biggest burdens, and I should also say responsibilities, is to help you find your way through the Christian experience, the ups and downs, the good and the bad. And I must acknowledge that there are so many voices in Christianity that tell you what you should expect as a believer... And how you can achieve victory in the Christian life. Yet, the many voices sometimes contradict each other. And sometimes what they have to say about the Christian life uh, discourages believers. Or even worse, in some cases, will ruin them. I remember hearing the personal testimony of J.I. Packer, who explained that uh, after he came to faith in Jesus Christ, after his conversion, one day he was on the brink of suicide because of what some people were teaching him about this passage right here. Then God intervened and helped him to grasp, I think in greater context, what this means and what the Christian experiences in in life should be like. 
I do not want you to be discouraged this morning. I do not want you to be confused. I've been praying that you would not be shipwrecked by anything that I say. But I do want you to gain a realistic picture of what to expect. I want you this morning to see what the Bible says about it. I want teenagers to see how things really are. And not the the way things appear to be with believers who sometimes hide their struggles, internal battles. I want believers who are depressed in the middle of a war or a struggle against their own flesh to understand some things. And I can't think of a better passage to show you these things than Romans 7, 13 through 25. So I encourage you as your pastor this morning, pay attention. Please pay attention. And it is my earnest prayer that you will hear the voice of God about how things really are. I will tell you this morning, there will be no frills to the sermon. There will be no outstanding illustration that grabs you. There will not even be a PowerPoint. Well, I have one slide. I do have one slide today. But there will be, through prayer, I believe, God's voice to you from his holy scripture if you will read this text and listen to it being explained. In the second half of Romans 7, Paul answers potential misunderstandings about the negative things that he has had to say about the law so far. If you remember in verse 7, uh, we brought out those first questions, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? Paul's opponents um, asked, are you saying, Paul, that the law is sin? Paul's answer after that in verses 7 through 12 is, no way, that's not what I'm saying. The law is not sin. In verse 12, he makes it really clear. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But Paul's opponents aren't done yet. And so they say, okay, okay, we've got that. But did that which is good, the law, did the law bring death to me? That's verse 13. That's the question they ask in verse 13. And that leads Paul to give a strong, stunning answer that vividly portrays the real culprit. It's not the law. It's something else. In Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, Paul will ask the question his opponents would ask. He answers it with a familiar answer. He then explains his answer, verses 13 through 20, before giving some final conclusions. I've decided this is my one chance at Romans 7 for the next 30 years. Likely in any setting, we're going to take two weeks to look at this passage. Okay, so we're going to look at those first things, question, answer, and explanations from Paul. We're going to look at verses 13 through 20 this morning. Now, in an effort to ask God to help us understand this passage, let's read it. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along to the whole text. I want us to be very familiar with this passage. Paul says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin 
producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All right, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Lord, we would pray. through your Spirit, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your Word. Lord, so many conflicting voices, some so dangerous in what they have to say about this passage. Lord, protect us, protect me, protect my voice. Help me not to say anything that's improper or wrong. Help me not to overstep. Help me not to make mistakes. And Lord, help us, help us all to understand what this text says. Help us to understand the picture that it presents. And might that be a worthy meditation before we partake in your table together and celebrate our Savior who frees us from all of this stuff. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so simple outline this morning. It starts with number one, a question in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Paul asks here, did the law bring death to me? Is the law an instrument that brings with it death? I think Paul's critics, again, misunderstand his theology of grace. And they think that he is blaming the law for death. So they ask, is the law to blame for my death? Paul's answer is a familiar answer, emphatic no. So number two, answer, great question, answer, middle verse 13, by no means. 
again, is an answer he's given on multiple occasions. May it never be. That's not what I'm saying. The law did not bring death to me or to us. The law is not what brought death to us. And that leads Paul to further explanations. I've got three points in my sermon today, and we're on number three. Explanation. Verses 13c through 20. Okay, now, the first two points each dealt with one phrase or sentence, I should say. This is several, so it's going to take a while. To explain his emphatic answer, Paul gives us verses 13c through 20. And he has a lot more that he wants to say about how law and death relate to one another. And more specifically, what the real problem is. And so he starts in verse 13, the rest of verse 13, with an initial explanation that he will further explain in the rest of the passage. So I want to look at verse 13. This is a very important verse. I want to see Paul's initial explanation. Look at verse 13. It was sin. Sin producing death in me through that which is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, so as we look at his initial explanation in verse 13... Uh, What we need to know is that uh, actually this part of the answer uh, or explanation starts out with a conjunction that the ESV does not translate. Other English translations get it, though I love the Christian Standard Bible. And it uh, translates it here at the beginning after, by no means, it'll say, on the contrary. That's reflecting one word. But, on the contrary, sin did. Paul's offering a counter-assertion. The problem is not the law. On the contrary, it is sin. This is where he points out our real problem, right? Sin. Now, he's already explained this all throughout Romans. It's, you know, it's not at this point we're going through and you, you sit back, you're like stunned. <gasps> There's no gas. Oh, I didn't think about it. It's sin that brings death to me. No, Paul's been making that point, right? Remember Romans 5.12? Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, what's the next phrase? And death through sin, right? So death spread to all men. What brings death to us? It's the answer. Sin. Good, you got it. Good. Sin. So Paul says, on the contrary, it's sin. More specifically, he says, sin produces death in me through that which is good, which is the law. That is, sin uses the law to produce death in me. I think Paul, consequently, has two things on his mind here. He's thinking about indwelling sin. And how indwelling sin, that Sin that indwells us, inhabits us, and implants in us its poison. Its poison is indwelling death. That's the other thing. We all have indwelling sin 
and indwelling death. Death is in me, he says in this text, because sin is in me. The real problem is my internal sin. But the rest of verse 13 is also important. Sin uses the law to produce death in us for two purposes. I want to show you these, and I think one of the ways you can see these in your own Bible, you might even think about marking them if you've got an ESV, is underlying the words might be and might become. These are two purposes. And I'm just going to visually kind of present them for you here. Paul is saying at this point, verse 13, uh, sin misuses the law in, in these ways. And all of this is done in order that sin might be something and, and sin might become something. These are parallel purposes, but I want to suggest one more thing to you about these two purposes is that they're both God's purposes. That's how I read these texts. These are divine purposes. These are not the whole or perhaps even the ultimate reasons or purposes for why God gave the law. But in verse 13, Paul considers God's motivation in giving the law to his people. All right, and so what are these two purposes? Well, first, if you got a handout, you can see it there at the bottom of page one. God did this because he wanted the law to reveal sin. The specific wording is, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. You see, the law of Moses served to show sin to be what it really is, sin. With all the commandments found in the law, just think of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not covet. With those things, God wanted to make things clear to people. So God says, that sin is, I want you to know, it's sin. Look at my law. See it there. You can't do that or that or that. You can't covet. You can't take my name in vain. You can't steal. That is sin. God wanted to use the law to reveal sin To show sin to be sin. That's one purpose. Want to be clear. Just in case there's any confusion. You know how we are, right? By our nature. Well, that's not really wrong, is it? Well, look in the law. It says right here. It's sin. That's one of God's purposes. The other one, second, God wanted sin to become. And then you've got a blank here. So you don't need to fill it in. Utterly sinful. Okay, so there's another divine purpose for the law. God also gave the law to his people in order that sin might become sinful beyond measure. You see that in your Bible? See that? Verse 13, sinful beyond measure. And as I read that, I'm like, what in the world? Especially when I came to the realization, I think these are God's purposes. Why would God want sin to be sinful beyond measure? first glance it might all seem wrong right why would god want sin to be beyond measure well explain i i'll start by saying the sense of this little phrase sinful beyond measure is not really clear in the original it's kind of hard to capture my favorite english translations of this are like the new american standard or the net bible and you might 
think about writing a little note in your Bible. They, they say it was in order that sin might become utterly sinful. Utterly sinful. So in what sense then did God use the law for sin to be, be, become utterly sinful? Well, the way I understand this part of the verse is God brings out the true character of sin. So he gives people the law. God, God wanted his people to see just how wicked sin is. And so he shows sin taking something good, God's holy law, twisting it, perverting it, hijacking it, as some people would say, abusing it, God's holy law, to work death in us. God wanted sin to be perceived as no, or known as something utterly sinful. The villain that it is. That's his initial explanation. But then in verses 14 through 20, he further explains. He amplifies what he means here. If you're a little confused at this point in the sermon or the text, you just have to keep reading and hopefully things open up a bit more for you. Maybe. I summarized Paul's further explanations with two statements. Okay, so I had initial explanation. That's verse 13. That's followed by two further explanations. And you can see these in your Bible by looking at the first words of verse 14. Okay. Uh, For we know. See that there, verse 14? For we know. And then look at the first words of verse 17. You looking? It says, for I know. For I know. There there are two big further explanations. And Paul says with both of them, we know know this about sin and and I know this about sin. Okay, so you can see there are two of them. The first one I would summarize this way. We know that the problem is not the law. The problem is indwelling sin. We all know this. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if what I do not, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I can't tell you how many times I've practiced reading this passage. Although it's hard to read, I do. Uh, I feel like I can relate with this passage very clearly. Paul's first implication uh, comes in verses 14 through 17. To say it concisely, again, we know that the problem is not the law. The problem is indwelling sin. He's made this point before, but I think he adds important nuances here. First, to defend the law, he says, we all know that the law is spiritual. It's the beginning of his answer. He's defending the law. It's not sin. The law didn't bring death to me. We know the law is actually spiritual. And I think that's an important adjective to use to describe the, the law because it means that the law is of divine origin. It came from the Holy Spirit of God. The law comes from God. In earlier places, you might have thought that he pitted the Holy Spirit against the law. Like in uh, chapter 7 and verse 6, where he says, We now serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the written code. 
And so some people could misunderstand that to say, well, Paul, you're, you're saying, okay, we've got the spirit today. He's against the law. And these are, these are opposite or not working together in some way. And, and so he makes it really clear here. No, no. What you need to know is the law is spiritual. It comes from the spirit of God. But then secondly, uh, Paul, after that, uh, says, uh, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Okay? And then he explains in verse 15 that he does not even understand his actions. Now, although Paul is confused about his own behavior, he knows enough to say two things here. One, he often doesn't, he, he often does what he doesn't want to do. And two, sometimes uh, he doesn't do what he wants to do. All right, and it's at this point in verse 14. I'm in verse 14 in case you've got lost. It's this point in verse 14 that we run into some big questions for interpretation. Uh, we, we come into this little phrase, I am of the flesh. And can I tell you, every word of that phrase is challenging. I am of the flesh. The first question people ask when they get to this passage is, who is the I? I am of the flesh. And I could preach whole sermons. I heard a preacher this week uh, online preach three sermons on who is the I of Romans chapter 7. And it's not a trivial question, right? Because over 40 times... In these two paragraphs, you will read, I, me, and mine. So asking the question, who is the I, is a good question. Now, unfortunately, there are at least five different ways that people answer that question. This has been perplexing to me over the years. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent trying to figure out who is the I. So let me just walk through a few of these at a very high level. There are five ways, major ways, and there are dozens of like sub-views underneath of them. Some people think that Paul's actually, and in your notes, you've got a place, there are five little circles, five views. Some people think Paul's actually talking about Adam or himself, Paul, in Union or harmony with Adam when he says I. Others think that Paul's talking about Israel. Or himself in union or solidarity with the Israelite people. Now the problem with these two views in my opinion is that Paul never mentions Israel or Adam in this text. It's very unlikely to me that Paul would require us to break some sort of code to figure out when I say I, what I really mean is Adam. Okay, got it? Okay, I'm not going to tell you that you just got to figure it out. Or what I really mean is Israel. I don't, I don't think those two are good. Uh, however, the, the other three all point to I being who? Who's writing? Paul. They're autobiographical. Paul's opening up to tell us something more about himself. Imagine that. I actually means Paul. We can read it that way. 
Okay, now some think that Paul's describing himself as a believer, like when he's writing Romans. They claim that the normal way to understand Paul switching from past verbs in verses 7 through 12, aorist verbs, past tense verbs, to present tense, all of his verbs here are present tense in verses 13 through 25, would be to understand him from moving, uh, from describing his life as an unbeliever, verses 7 through 12. But now he's talking about life as a believer, life for himself as a believer. They say Paul is describing a believer like himself in this passage. They say that Paul is confessing his struggles with indwelling sin as a Christian who's not yet glorified. Paul's confessing internal struggles. He's bringing them to the light for the Roman readers so that they can understand this. They claim that Romans 7 must be read in combination with a fuller description of the Christian life in Romans 8. You just keep reading and see the full picture. And sometimes preachers slow down so much we forget, like, what book am I even in? Right? And there's some danger in that. Some danger in that. And they say, well, you've got to hold Romans 7 and 8 together. Romans 7 is true of the life of a believer, but so is Romans 8. Through the Spirit. Finally, they they point out that the answer to Paul's exclamation in verse 24 can only be true of Christians. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? I, and here's the answer, I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So some people say this is Paul writing as a believer, like when he's writing a letter to Romans and... um, And uh, he thanks God for the deliverance that he receives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Others say it's Paul, but they would say it's Paul is reflecting, still reflecting back on when he was an unbeliever. Most of the church fathers held this. I've got a whole host of other people who hold this. I won't take the time to look at that with you. They claim in this passage that there's no mention of the Holy Spirit in these internal struggles against sin in Romans 7, they mention that I is described as a prisoner of sin and unable to break free of the power of sin. They suggest that Paul switches at this point in his argument to present tense verbs to just vividly portray the state that he used to live in as an unbeliever. And so there are a whole host of people who say Paul is an unbeliever as well. Finally, there's, there's one last way of looking at this, and, and they would say it's Paul, but he's describing someone like himself who tries to deal with sin through the law. And the point they would make here is that he's not necessarily telling us if, if he's talking out of, about a believer or an unbeliever, and that this could be true of both who try to deal with sin through the law. Thank you for making our way through this. Now, I believe, okay, and uh, boy, I've wrestled with this for so long. I believe it makes, makes most sense to see Paul as referring to himself as he wrote Romans as a believer. I'd have to be thoroughly convinced to go in a different direction. Now, you, you can try to thoroughly convince me this week. You can come to me. But Paul is describing, I believe, the battles of a believer who deals with indwelling sin and death until the day that he is glorified in heaven. 
Now, it's important for me for you to understand this part of Romans 7 that this, I see this as part of normal Christian experience. This is part, I, I think, of our normal Christian experience. I don't think that he's describing some sort of immature stage in Romans 7 that we can advance beyond into Romans 8. There was a time when I used to hold something like that. Used to think that way about Romans 7 and 8. A time when I believed in a higher life kind of theology. And I might say something like this. We need to leave Romans 7 to get to Romans 8. Instead, I don't think that's right. Romans 7 is Paul's mature and full comprehension of his own walk as a normal believer. I know it's been technical and hard to follow uh, to this point, but I would agree with some words from Cranfield, a commentary on Romans, and he used three words. He says, there, there are two contemporaneous realities. Those are big words, right? Well, not the word two. Two contemporaneous realities described in Romans 7 and 8. Not two stages of our Christian experience. I think we've got them both going on at the same time. Okay? Some might object. Do you think Paul would describe the Christian life so negatively? He says he's this, oh, wretched or miserable man. I mean, would he really describe himself as a believer in that way? Well, I answered, do you think Paul would say this about himself? You know, someone would ask, do you think Paul would say this about himself? I, I answer, uh, have you read Paul in other places? Near the end of his life, Paul says something about himself. He says, I am the chief of sinners, period. I am the chief of sinners, what he says he also says to believers in galatians 5 the desires of the flesh are against the spirit these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do what's that sound like i want to do what i don't do the desires of the flesh and a believer in the desires of the spirit Warring against each other to keep us from doing the things that we want. To add another apostle to this, Peter. Peter speaks to this. I mean, do you think Peter ever could say, I did what I didn't want to do? Do you think he ever said that as a believer? Right, I'm thinking of the denial. Jesus, before this, he professes the deity of Jesus Christ. And he denies him. Later on, I think of what he does at Antioch. In Galatians 2, you remember that? He betrays the gospel and the apostle Paul is to confront him. And yet Peter calls for believers in 1 Peter 2.11. He says this. Uh, he calls believers to abstain from the passions of of the flesh which are waging war against your soul. That's why I think Paul could be talking about himself as a believer in Romans 7. 
course, I could add that my own personal experience coheres with this as a believer. Maybe I'm not alone as I look at a bunch of eyeballs out there, most of which are open still by God's grace. So we're in verse 14. Uh, We're in verse 14. Paul says, the law is spiritual, but I, Paul's a believer, am of the flesh. And this last part is, is hard too. Look at my time here. I'm going to have to wrap it up at the end of this verse. The final part of the phrase is not much easier. Paul says of the flesh, and uh, the word flesh is challenging to understand. It's the, the word sarks, which is that part of me as a believer that is weak because of sin. The flesh speaks of my being subjected to and under the influence of sin that is dwelling in me. In this passage, we will read Paul's description of sin, and he says it dwells in us. Sin has invaded our experience. That that word dwells is a verb which comes from the word for house. Sin has made its home in me, in my flesh. As a matter of fact, Paul continues by saying at the end of the verse here that he is sold under sin. So Paul continues in this current age fighting against sin and hoping and longing for the day when, and this is how I take Romans 7.24, when God will deliver him from this body bound by indwelling sin and indwelling death. Paul's looking forward to a day when Jesus will return and deliver us finally from this body that is inflicted, inflicted with sin and death. You say, well, that's a very bleak view of Christians. I say, does does your present experience prove otherwise? Do you have the battle against sin all figured out? I hear a lot of no's out there. No? I see these descriptions of believers who know the battle or war that they face in sanctification day by day. Now, better news is coming. Romans 8 is coming. Christians do not live in continual defeat, but the point of this text is we don't live in continual victory either. There's a real thing called sin in the flesh. We battle it day by day, and this text is meant, I believe, to remind us of this. As we close, I hope that you can sense the tone of the Apostle Paul in this passage. In these transparent words, Paul lets us in on what it was actually like to be the apostle to the nations. And in one paragraph here, we have seen him lamenting his inner condition. He had said things like this, sin 
is producing death in me. I am of flesh sold under sin. He says, I don't understand what I keep doing. I do uh, uh, not do what I want. I keep doing what I hate. Later on, he will say, nothing good dwells in me. Well, tell us about like what's really on the end. He sits down with a psychologist, right? And he's telling him, well, what are the battles you're describing? Say, nothing good is in me, in my flesh. I have desire, but I don't have the ability. I keep on doing evil. That's what Paul says. You say, man, that's bad. Sounds like sin is strong and that it's in me. Sounds like it's also planted death in me. Men and women, perhaps that's a good, that's something good for you to admit to God in prayer when we go to the Lord's table. He knows it already about you. You admit this, God, sin is producing death in me. I am of sinful flesh. This week, I kept doing what I do not want. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. I have desire, God, but I don't have the ability. That's true of all of us, and that's a good confession. But my, I fast forward to read two verses from Romans 8. Look at Romans 8, 3 and 4. I ask you, might I read them? And you're like, please do. Please, something else. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In who? Us. Really? Yes, us. Who walk not after or according to the flesh according to the Spirit. As we go to the table, let's confess our sin to the Lord, but let's also profess our Savior. God has done what the law could not do for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And one day, He will deliver us. You know, the wretched, miserable men and women in this room who are in Jesus. God will deliver us one day when Jesus returns, takes us to glory, and frees us from this body of death. 